morning. Do you remember me? My name's Dan Hardy. <clears throat> I've got a Burl Ives voice this morning. And I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be opening God's word with you this morning. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for your spirit that brings understanding to your word. Thank you that, um, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've given us everything we need to run this race called life. And I thank you, Father, that when we stumble, when we fail, when we are unfaithful, that you are always faithful. I thank you for the promise that for those that, who have been regenerated, who have been born again, whose hearts have been turned from stone to flesh, those who have by faith um, have been saved, God, I thank you that we will make it all the way to the finish line. That um, our sin, the sin of others, um, our unbelief along the way uh, won't prevent us from making it. God, you've got so much more for us, and I pray, God, that we would be encouraged today, that believers would be encouraged today to uh, run the race that is set before us with great endurance, and we find joy in the midst of the race, even in the midst of trials. So God, would you be honored and glorified? I pray that we would be um, edified by the word, that we'd be changed. I pray that you'd give me grace with my voice, and that we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. I was um, in Starbucks yesterday um, afternoon just with a pen and pad and Bible out. I'd already kind of written the sermon. I'd given it to the guys on Friday in, in, in part, but just really feeling like, um, like w just asking God, what do you have for me? Um, what do you have for me in this? Um, because God's word is a living. It's active. It's, um, it's given to us to bring us great encouragement and hope to point us to Jesus, to remind us who we are but also to convict of sin and to uh, show us areas that, that God really wants to, uh, to change in us. So I was, I was sitting there, and, um, and um, a, a man walks in, and, uh, and I could just tell he's like, you know, checking out what I'm reading. And he finally comes over and he talks to me. And he says, what are you reading? Bible. And I said, Hebrews 12. And he goes, I said, are you familiar with it? And he says, oh, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. And this is a man who... Um, lives in Greeley. I've never met him before. Um, and now I've, I'm, I, I would guess we're going to be great friends. But this guy said, um, this passage has spoken to me because um, I did not run the race with endurance. He said, I, had, uh, I succumbed to sexual sin. And it was so bad that they sent me away to Kentucky for nine months. And my wife divorced me. And my five kids are wondering what happened to Daddy. And he said that it was the besetting sin in my life that reminded me of how much God loves me, and that he promises to never leave me nor forsake me. And he said that, he says that uh, even in the midst of this trial that he created, he has so much joy, and he is bound and determined to live his life, the rest of his life, imperfectly, in submission to the Spirit, running the race with endurance, the race that's set before him, whether it's with his wife or without his wife. And he's going to do everything he can to win his wife back. 
it was just a great picture for me of endurance and how um, in other types of ways I need to endure. Um, that there's, there's besetting sin in my life. There's other um, good endeavors that are um, impeding uh, my endurance. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. The main point in today's sermon is one imperative. It's to run. That's the imperative. Let's pray. No. Uh, run and keep running. That's, that's it. That's what you need to take away. So the author refers to uh, the Christian life as a race. But it's not a race how you might think of a race. It's not a sprint. It's not a 5K. It's not a marathon. I think it's best compared to an ultra marathon. And what an ultra marathon is, is any race that is over 26.2 miles. Life is a race of endurance that God has set before us. So today's passage, my prayer for today's passage is that we will have courage when we leave here and motivation to run the race that God providentially set before us with endurance, even when we're weary and faint-hearted. I walked in this morning, and I couldn't talk. I went, Lord, you got such a sense of humor. Like, help me endure. And then I start speaking into the mic, and the mic doesn't work. So I got to, like, preach from this thing. And so um, God will always give us more than we can handle. Um, But he's gracious throughout all of it. So here's the deal, church family. The way that we run the race that God has set before us will impact the joy we experience. But if you are in Christ, you will finish the race. And this race, we're meant to run this race with great joy. Jesus said, I came to give you life and give you life abundantly. So if you're in Christ, you're going to make it to the end. But the life that he has given us to live is not one where we limp through and crawl through and barely make it to the end. That we can find joy in this race in the midst of any hardship that he brings our way. So I think the goal of the author today is to encourage us to run the race of faith, not shrinking back, but looking to Jesus, the one who paved the way for us. The Leadville 100 is an ultramarathon. Some of you have heard of it. It was founded in 1994. It was the second ultramarathon that was founded. The race is officially 99 miles, but that doesn't sell, so they call it the Leadville 100. So I, I, um, the, there, in this 99-mile race, there's 15,734 feet of vertical gain. It's an out-and-back course. You go out 50 miles, come back 49, I guess, or go out 49, come back 50. The elevation finishes, starts and finishes at 10,160 feet. It dips down to a low point of 9,219 feet, and it tops out at 12,532 feet at the top of Hope Pass. And you get to go up and down Hope Pass twice at the 45-mile marker and the 55-mile marker. The time cap for completing it is 30 hours. The fastest man to ever run it was just less than 18 hours. And the fastest woman to run it is just a little over 16 hours. Excuse me, uh, man is 18 hours, uh, man is 15 hours, excuse me, and the woman is 18 hours. In most years, though, less than half of the 800 people who start finish the race. Time cap 30, there's a couple of world records, but more than half don't complete the race in the 30-hour limit. Here's some things that all the runners have in common. They all start 
and end in the same place, the ones that finish the race. They, they all start in the same place, and the ones who finish it finish in the same place. They've all studied the trail, and they've talked to others that have ran the trail before them. You don't run the Leadville 100 without at least like interviewing a few people or reading some stories about like how did it go, and to make sure that there's not an obituary of the person that ran it, and make sure that they actually answer the phone. They experience many of the same obstacles and difficulties, but their experience on the same trail can be vastly different from one runner to the other. Some get blisters and headaches and they trip and fall. Some encounter wild animals. They're lonely. They're discouraged. They're depressed. They carry different items. I Googled, what do you take with you when running the Leadville 100? And I found a video of a guy. He actually has like 3,000 hits on this video. And it's an hour and two minutes long on what you, what you take on the race. And, and you got to be right on that. Um, there's all kinds of like water bottles and candy wrappers and, and maybe even some like Apple watches along the trail because they're weighted down with the wrong things. And you can be weighted down for the wrong things for a mile, but you can't be weighted down with the wrong things for 99 miles. They have different body sizes and different paces, different gates. The first 50 miles, get this, the first 50 miles is ran alone. So all 800 registrants or starters, they, they run it alone. I mean, there were 799 other people, but you spread out. You can't have anybody um, pace you. But at mile 50, you can have somebody pace you back to mile 100. And the reason being is because all kinds of things go wrong. It's dark for, most, for a lot of that second half. And people get dehydrated. People get sick. There's actually been people that have died on the trail. Sorry, Emily. Josh is an ultramarathoner. My story, I had the opportunity of pacing somebody. A good friend of mine from Greeley, he's not a good friend now. I don't even know where he lives, but he's a good friend at the time. I got to pace him. And he arrived at the 50-mile mark. He got some water, changed some shoes, and we started back. And then at the 55-mile mark, we went up Hope Pass to 12,000, whatever feet it was. And then after coming down the pass, you cross a river. You cross a river that's about waist deep, and you got this, this rope that takes you across because it's flowing rather fast at times, particularly if it was a heavy snow year, and it was this year. And it's starting to get dark and cold, and you're wet, and you're running. And as we continued on the trail, he seemed to stay hydrated, and I tried to encourage him, like he can do it, like just keep, keep pressing on. He ate constantly. I don't know if you know about ultramarathoners. They eat nonstop. I mean, there's, a, there's occasional stations along the way, but they're carrying all kinds of garbage to eat with them to make sure that they got the right amount of food and the right amount of salt. You don't want to have, um, you don't want, you want to have enough salt so that you don't sweat too much, but you don't want to have too much salt so you don't sweat at all. So they're like continually trying to dial this in over 100 miles. Around the 70-mile mark, the 20-mile mark for me, I noticed that his hands were swollen to about twice the size. His fingers looked like sausages. His, the, the blood from his feet were starting to come through the shoes. And so we continued on to mile 79, which is at the fish, fish hatchery where my wife Nancy and his wife met us. And he told his wife that, I want to quit. I, I, can't, I can't go anywhere. I like him in pain. Can you imagine the pain of not being able to sweat? He had too much salt, apparently. And his feet, the skin was just coming off his feet. And here's what she said to him. If you quit, we are never doing this again. Because there was a massive sacrifice. 
Like, if you think about it, if you're going to run 100 miles, how much time do you need to devote every day to run? And she said, we'll never do it again. He says, okay, let's go home. <laughs> you know, like, I'm good. I'm good. I honestly don't know if he ever did it again. I lost touch with him. So why do I tell you the details of this story? It's because I think an ultra marathon is the best illustration, best racing illustration of the Christian life. There's a starting line, a finish line. There's a path set before the runners, and there's varying degrees of uncertainty and trials. Yet there's two massive differences between the ultramarathon race and the Christian race. Only half of those who start the Leadville 100 finish. 100% of those who start the Christian race will finish. In Leadville, there's one victor. Was two men and woman in the Christian race, we will all be victorious because of Jesus' victory. We will all receive the victor's crown. The race before, uh, set before every Christian requires enduring faith. If you remember, the author's original audience has experienced some type of persecution. It's right before um, Jerusalem fell, and the heat was getting turned up. It was a lot easier to be a Jew and denounce the Christian faith. So there's some that were, that were shrinking back, and they were growing weary and faint-hearted. And right before the author presented all the faithful saints in chapter 11 that Stephen and Chad did such a good job highlighting the last four weeks, he said this at the end of chapter 10. The author did. But we, Christians, are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith that preserve their souls. And then he launches into chapter 11 and encourages readers with examples of imperfect saints who were committed by their enduring faith. But the main point of the text today is run and keep running no matter what it is that you face. And I got a bit of an outline here, and, um, and I like that, like, like really insecure with it because I operate off of outlines, but like chatty, like he like alliterated it like with these P's, like, like you know, perfect and process and purposeful and all that. And like you wouldn't even understand what I was saying if I tried to, to alliterate it. So here's the deal. Here's the outline. Um, point number one, we need to run the race, not any race, but the race that is set before us, the race that is set before you. Number two, we need courage to run. It's a hard trail. And we get that courage from the cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And number three, we need endurance to keep running. And we find that endurance by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and considering Jesus, and, and I missed a point, laying aside the sin and weight that so easily entangles us. So I've got a question, and I, want, I, I, I pray that you ask yourself this question at the dinner table tonight or tomorrow morning in your, in your, in your uh, quiet time. Here's the question. What is weighing you down and keeping you from joyfully running the race of faith? What is weighing you down and keeping you from joyfully running the race of faith? <clears throat> so point number one, run the race set before us. Generally speaking, we're running the same race that every other Christian is running and every other Christian that has ran before us. We have the same starting and finishing lines. We have the same warnings and encouragements from God's Word. We, get to, we have the same family, church family, big, big C church. 
We're commanded to run the race that is set before us. And the Greek word that's underlying the word race is A-G-O-N, agon. What word do you think comes from agon? Agony. That there's agony in the race. Paul refers to this race as a conflict. Same word for, for agon is, 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 is a conflict in Philippians 1, 29-30. Paul says, For it has been granted to you, church, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged, here it comes, in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And then he describes the race in 2 Timothy 4, 6, 8 as fighting the good fight. And when the fight is done and we've kept the faith, we receive the crown. So life is not just a race. It's a race set before each of us, individually and collectively. Each of us have been given a unique race to run with unique trials and unique blessings that have been marked out for each of us individually, been marked out for our families. There's, there's a unique race that's been set for this church, for, for northern Colorado, for this country. So we have different trials. We have different circumstances, including varying degrees of suffering than others who are running or have run the, ran the same race. My friend ran, ran the same path as 799 other runners, yet he fought obstacles that the others may not have fought, including doubt and discouragement, swollen hands and bloody feet. That we all, have, we all experience trials of various kinds, but they're different. They have varying degrees. Many of you have had trials in this church family that I will never experience, that I haven't experienced to this day. I've had trials in my life. I feel like I've caused people more trials than I've had trials. But many of you have miscarried, a pain that I can't even imagine walking through. Some of you have wayward adult children that don't talk to you. Divorce, sexual abuse the death of a loved one, the C-word, cancer, financial difficulties. We all have thorns in our flesh. There's thorns in the flesh of all kinds. And we're told in various places in Scripture that we're given trials to strengthen our faith. This man that I met at Starbucks, he said, he said if I had not had this trial that I caused with my sin, and then the trial getting worse with my wife and kids leaving me, he said, I wouldn't have the resolve to follow Jesus in the same way that I want to follow Jesus today. There's joy in obedience. James says, account, James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the same way that I was able, here's, so, so don't fight against trials. Embrace them. I know that they're a good gift. But here's the deal. In the same way that I paced my buddy in the Leadville 100, we need others to run with us. We need pacers in this life. We need pacers to bring us encouragement, to pray for us, to help meet practical needs. To help us believe when we are doubting. You see, every person who is born again by the Spirit will make it to the finish line. You will persevere to the end. 
No matter how swollen, discouraged, doubting, or bloody, you will make it to the end. But the journey is helpful, is, is easier with the help of faithful and committed brothers and sisters. We need pacers in this life. So let me ask you the question. Who is your pacer? That if you don't have pacers walking alongside you, you have the Spirit of God, praise God, who is an ever-present help in time of need. He is always in lockstep with you. He's with you every step of the way. But he's given us the church that has fellow pacers in it. And like me, you need pacers. And men, like I know, like we got Father's Day coming up two weeks, and I know we don't have a, a men's ministry right now. And we're working towards that. Ladies, you just like create women's ministry like wherever you're at. But men, like I want to I want to encourage you, like ask somebody to pace you. Like I've I've been running the 50 miles by myself. Now I'm turning around, I'm 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 hitting the last 50. And I need you to pace me, to pray for me, to encourage me, to admonish me, to exhort me. This is a hard life. It's an awesome life. There's so much that Jesus said that he came to give us life so that we can in life abundantly. But we need other people. Who's your pacer? Next, we need the courage to run. We often find courage to keep going when others have gone before us, when we get examples of others that have lived life before us. In this case, the author points to a great cloud of witnesses. And these witnesses are the saints mentioned in chapter 11, the hall of faith, who lived and died a valiant life. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. They are all those great men and women who are committed because of their faith We're jacked up sinners, just like me and you. Why do I tell you that? It gives me hope. It gives me hope. And these these faithful people suffered and died. And these witnesses who surround us, including the names and lives of many people who faithfully ran the race uh, before us, that's not just in chapter 11. I mentioned in the first service, I'll say it again, like Doyle, like Doyle Simmons, Carol's dear husband, is a faithful witness in my life. I think about the way he lived his life. I think about the way that he, he wasn't perfect, but the way he forsook sin. The way that he and Carol went to the mission field, forsaking um, a successful um, career as medical doctors, both of them, and they went to Africa. That's not for everybody, but he's a faithful witness. I can look at his life and go, God, thank you for his life. That spurs me on to live life in submission to you. So these faithful witnesses include family and friends who we knew well, and stories of missionaries and faithful uh, saints of old. This is great reason to read um, um, biographies of, of missionaries, of Christians that have gone before us. It gives us courage. When we see people have done crazy things, it gives us courage to go next door and talk to our neighbor. It gives us courage to say no to sin. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What does their witnessing this refer to? 
surrounded by so cloud of witnesses. What does it refer to? Does it refer to their watching us from heaven? <coughs> Think of funerals you've gone to, like, oh, such and such. I know they're just smiling down, down on us today. They might be. The Bible's silent on that. So does it refer to their watching us from heaven, or does it refer to their witnessing to us by their lives? The, witness, the word witness can have um, either meaning, the act of seeing something or the act of telling something. Someone can actively witness my life in real time, <coughs> excuse me, or they could be a witness to you and me by the way they live their life, which is it here? It seems to be the act of telling. I told myself I would just kind of tell the sermon today. I don't have it in me. <clears throat> Has anybody ever heard of Fisherman's Friend? Yeah, they're the best cop drops out there. Pastor's Friend this morning. So someone can actively witness your life in real time, or they can witness to you by the way they live their life. And what the author is talking about here is the act of telling. These people, these saints, are active witnesses who speak to us by their example. They're not passive witnesses who watch us with their eyes. The verb form, the verb form of this word witness is used five times in Hebrews 11. And always it refers to giving of a testimony or giving of a commendation for the way that they lived rather than merely watching an event. Hebrews 11.4 is the best example in chapter 11. It's a great example where the writer speaks of Abel and says this about Abel. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His example speaks to us. So Abel is in the cloud of witnesses and he is witnessing to us by his life through the scriptures. So it's helpful to witness the lives of people who have gone before us and made it. <clears throat> Let me give you an illustration that I hope will be helpful in understanding how helpful it is to read about people who have gone before us, <coughs> talk to people who have gone before us. On May 6, 1954, an Englishman by the name of Roger, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. First one in history. A four-minute mile was not only a physical barrier, it, was a, it had a psychological barrier. It felt like an unconquerable mountain. And the closer you got to it, the closer you approached it, the more daunting this four-minute mark became. The experts believed that they knew the precise condition which the mark would, would fall. <coughs> it, would, it would be in perfect weather, 68 degrees, no wind on a particular type of track, hard, dry clay, in front of a huge, boisterous crowd, urging the runner on to its best ever performance. But Bannister did it on a cold day, on a wet track, at a small meet in Oxford, England. You know what happened next? After he broke that record, even his most ardent rivals breathed a sigh of relief. 
At last, somebody did it. And once they knew it could be done, they did it too. Just 46 days later, after Bannister's feet, a guy by the name of John Landy, an Australian runner, not only broke the barrier, but beat it by two seconds. A year later, three runners broke the four-minute barrier in a single year. To date, 1,700 people have broke the four-minute barrier, including several high school athletes. Witnessing the lives of imperfect people who have finished the Christian race before us helps us trust our faithful God and gives us the courage to keep running no matter what we face. We can look back on the lives of faithful people, faithful Christians, and picture them. They're not looking down on this, but we can picture them gathered along our route, (coughs) testifying (coughs) by their wounds and their mistakes and their joys that they kept running and God carried them all the way to the end. We can hear their lives scream, by faith I finished and you can too. By faith you will finish. Keep running. Run. Run by faith. So we have a race to run and we need courage to run it from those who have gone before us. But courage and confidence are easily expressed before the race, before a pre-race interview. You ever seen a boxer being interviewed? And I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm in fighting weight. I'm going to like knock him out in the third round. Fight starts. He's on his back in like 10 seconds. That can happen. It can happen in a race. You can have, you can have all the courage you need. We need to endure difficulty and disappointment after the race has started after we've been saved when we've been saved does anybody notice that life doesn't necessarily get easier after you've come to Christ but there's so much more joy there's so much more hope there's so much more peace we need to endure difficulty and disappointment in order to finish the race so next is endurance to keep running and There's three aspects. Lay aside, look to Jesus, and consider Jesus. First of all, what is endurance? Christian endurance is the characteristic of a Christian who perseveres in faith by keeping in step with the Spirit through great trials and suffering. If there's no no trials, there's no endurance. You don't need endurance. First Peter talks about that. All along the way, there are pain barriers in a long-distance race that are physical, emotional, and spiritual. And these barriers can, if we're not alert, if we're not enduring, if we're not being strengthened by God's grace, they can cause us to shrink back rather than move forward. Hebrews 10 uh, says this, for you have, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So in order to endure the race and remain faithful, we've got to ask two questions. What is it that I need to lay aside, and where do I need to keep my eyes? Think of the altar runner. What is it that he or she needs to lay aside? And where do they need to keep their eyes? First, what we need to lay aside. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're commanded to lay aside every sin and weight that clings so closely. New King James says that ensnares us. The weight and sin that ensnares us. New Living Translation says that every sin and weight that slows us down. The NIV and NASB says the, the sin and weight that entangles us. Sin will impede our endurance. Sin 
will rob us of joy. We, we think that we, 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 do, we, we go against God's word because we think we can find ultimate and true happiness in the things that he's opposed to, and that never works out well. But sin will impede our endurance, and, and all sin is rooted in unbelief. And unbelief is manifest when we consciously choose a different path or make a different decision than what, than what God's word lays out. The saints were commended for their faith in chapter 11, and they did what God asked them to do, and they fought the good fight of faith. Whenever we're encouraged to lay aside or put off sin, you know what you can assume? That you have sin to lay aside or put off. Christians, this is written to us. I just listed some. These besetting sins that every Christian has that slows us down. Could be lust, could be anger, could be gossip. Those are just a few of them. In order to lay them aside, you need to what? You need to know what they are. You need to take an inventory of your heart. Ask God and ask faithful pacers that are walking life with you to help you identify these, these sins and then lay them aside. And we do that with no condemnation. We ask God to examine us, the God who loves us, who promises to, promises to never leave us nor forsake us, the God who already knows everything in our heart. <coughs> but we must not only lay aside sin, entangling sin, but every weight, and this is different than sin, every weight that is every encumbrance or obstacle that inhibits your running and slows you down. And these are things that are not sin. <coughs> they could turn into sin. I'm so sorry. You guys pray for me, would you? <clears throat> these are things, every weight are things that in moderation can be helpful to us. They're not, they're not inherently bad. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He was speaking about food. He says, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The race of the Christian life is not run well by asking, what's wrong with this or that? It's not a sin. Why can't I keep doing it? It's ran by asking, is, is this, this thing that I'm doing, <coughs> is this the way of greater faith and obedience and lasting joy? So I want to encourage you, take, take inventory. Take inventory of the way you spend your time. Take inventory of the way you, you spend your money. Include in that inventory permissible endeavors. I don't know what they are. Here's just a list. Concerts, vacations, parties, movies, TV, gaming, <coughs> adult sports leagues, competitive youth sports. Um, I participated in a lot of those. And I love a lot of those. Grateful for them. They can actually be used by the Lord. But ask the question, that is the way that you're spending your time, is it hindering <coughs> your joy in the race? Don't ask, is it sin, but does it help me run? Or is it in the way? Is it weighing you down and causing swelling and bleeding and sucking the joy out of you? If it is, lay it aside. Next aspect of endurance is look to Jesus. Not second because it's least important, but second in the text. So lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Next question is, where's your eyes? 
When we're not laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, we tend to take our eyes off of Jesus and we stare or obsess at the trail. And we get anxious. And we get discouraged. So the author exhorts us, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The founder of our faith. The only people that are going to survive this ultra-marathon called life are those whose faith has been founded as a result of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And again, I'll say it again here, the, the, the question this morning, brothers and sisters, isn't are we going to make it across? But how are you going to make it across? How are you going to run the race? A founder... Jesus, the founder of our faith, a founder is one who has gone before us. Think of it as someone who has jumped across the chasm. Somebody that you're, you're on this side, there's a great chasm, and you need to get to the other side, and you can't get there. Uh, people have used this illustration to share Christ for years, and I think it's a pretty good one, actually, that we're on this side of a chasm, and God the Father is on the other side. And there's no way to the Father. And Jesus, the founder of our faith, the champion of our faith, bridged that chasm. That he provided the only way to get across. He is our, he is our forerunner. Jesus ran the perfect race. And he won the ultimate victory. So that by faith, faith in his finished work, we will share in his victory celebration. He endured the cross and thought nothing of the shame for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? I want you to say this to somebody next to you. The joy that was set before him was you. Say it. It was you. The joy that was set before Jesus, the reason that he endured the cross, was for you. So that you could be in relationship with him. And I want to talk just a moment to anybody here that is not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. You're on this side of the chasm. And Jesus is the only way across. And the reason that you're on this side and God is on the other side is because he's a holy and just God. And he can have nothing to do with sinful humanity. So Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life, bridged the chasm so that what you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be saved. And if that's you, and maybe you've never heard that before, or maybe you heard it and you're for the first time understanding it, I want you to talk to somebody who has invited you here today. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to a community group leader. Talk to uh, uh, another lady that invited you. So Jesus is the founder of our faith. There's no faith without Jesus founding. He's also the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who strengthens us to run the race, and he will incrementally perfect us. He is, it's by his grace and by his strength that we can even take another step. And each step that we take, by God's grace, we're looking more like Jesus. And one day, 
<coughs> excuse me, we're going to hit that finish line, and he's going to welcome us, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to wipe away our tear. And we will be perfect. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more suffering. And there'll be no more death. But right now, we're in the process of perfection. So keep your eyes on him. The one who gave you faith. The one who will perfect your faith and bring you all the way home. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Faithful were walking into Vanity Fair. And they were warned. They were given this warning. Many have fallen who walked with one eye on eternity and the other eye on the present. As you want to keep from falling, you want to keep from carrying too much weight and too much sin, keep both eyes on eternity, on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Like the ultra runner, whose hands are swollen or feet are bleeding as a result of the race, that runner looks to the prize. He can't concentrate or she can't concentrate on the next river crossing or next mountain. They concentrate on the prize. And we can make it through all the imperfections of this life by looking to the one whose grace strengthens and sustains us at, and at the end of the race will greet us, as I've already said. Jesus is seated at the finish line. His work is done. And he's seated and he's, he sees you he hears your cries for help. And he's with you every step of the way. Again, in Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know who the character was, but they said this to Christian. I am glad not that you had to face so many challenges, but that you, that you faced them with such faith and continued in the way. That crown, dear Christian, awaits you and it will last forever. That's our hope. And then finally, he closes it off in verse 3 with this section and says, Consider Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may grow, not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus, yes, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And his life is our ultimate example. He not only saved us, he not only is going to carry us to the end, he's our example. Consider the hostility that he endured. He enjoyed, for the joy set before him, he was obedient to the Father. And let me give this to you just as gently as I can in closing. If you're feeling weighed down and exhausted, the problem isn't Jesus. He's unfailing. He's energizing. And he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Nor is the problem the race and the trials in the race that he has called us to run. The problem is something else. Even something non-sinful and allowable. But it's that something else that is preventing us from running an unleashed, all-out race with the joy that is set before us. And the pathway to a joyful race is getting clean or rid of it because our hearts are reaching for the promises of God. This, brothers and sisters, is living by faith. So let me ask you the question that I started with. What is weighing you down and keeping you from joyfully running the race of faith? Please join me in this. Take an inventory. Take an inventory of the ways, of, of what weighs you down 
and ask the founder and perfecter of your faith, the one who loves you the most, to strengthen you to endure the faithful race you will experience uh, and, and experience increasing joy, even in the midst of trials. Last, invite a pacer to go with you, please. You're not, you're not Superman and woman. We need brothers and sisters who know us and will run this race with us. And knowing that Jesus is with us, he's waiting at the finish line, that his spirit indwells us, and that we have a pacer with us, I want to exhort you to run. Keep on running. Run for the joy that was set before you. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this gentle encouragement and exhortation that we have received from the author of Hebrews. I thank you for the race that you've set before me and each of us individually and collectively. And Lord, you've given each of us, uh, or you've given some an extra measure of trials, and God, we will never understand why. But I pray that the trials would take their effect, they would, that they would um, help us endure and be steadfast. They would give us more joy, joy that's found in our good and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, would you help us be a church, not of lone rangers, but of runners and pacers, ones who encourage one another along the race, encourage one another to shed the weight, to shed the sin, and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.